Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. How many of you grew up in a small enough town with a little general store that a few times a year would make up a bunch of brown paper bags with random stuff and then sell it for like a dollar or five dollars or something like that? Ah, the grab bag. It was like a mini Christmas in a sack put together by a drunken Santa who just threw a bunch of random, mostly useless junk that nobody wanted into a lunch sack and sold it to you to recoup at least a little of the money spent to buy this garbage in the first place. Now I mock, but as a kid, that was literally the coolest thing. You never knew what you were going to get. Welcome to today's episode. It's a veritable grab bag of fun and excitement. You'll laugh, hopefully. You'll cry, probably not true, and you'll probably get whiplash from the topic changes akin to the last time, and the last time ever, you rode that horrible amusement park roller coaster that beat you nearly to unconsciousness. Doesn't this sound fun? So on today's episode, we're going to be very, very wrong. I mean, unthinkably wrong. And then we're going to try something a little new. We're going to walk by sight and not by faith and review a dandy of a sermon, and then I'm going to try to emotionally manipulate you into doing my bidding. So grab your scientific calculator, do what I say, and get your Bible. (laughs) Uh, Just kidding, you won't need that. Hey, here we go. Have you ever made a mistake, like a really bad mistake, a big mistake, and said something like, wow, I was a million percent wrong on that one? Maybe you didn't say exactly that, but something along those lines where you use just an unthinkable way of expressing how wrong you were. And unless you're a dramatic person, you don't use a phrase like that unless you really screwed up. Well, let me introduce you to evolutionary science. From USA Today via MSN.com, headline, Massive 19-mile-wide crater in Greenland, actually much older than we thought, study says. So a massive crater was discovered in 2015 under the northwestern ice sheet in Greenland. The crater, named Hiawatha Crater, is 19 miles wide. As the article says, it's, quote, big enough to swallow Washington, D.C. Oh, don't taunt me like that. (laughs) Anyway, so the Hiawatha Crater was originally assumed to have formed in the same terrain as is mapped across that region, and it includes ice from the last glacial period, which is from 11,700 years ago to 115,000 years ago, allegedly. Then this article I found from 2018 on CraterExplorer.ca talks about some more things I neither understand nor care about, and they narrow the age of the crater down further with a final statement of, quote, if this crater could be dated to 12,800 years old, it could certainly be credited as the younger Dryas instigator. And I know you're rolling your eyes, probably shouting at whatever device you're listening on. We know, Dan, that's obvious. Get on with it so I will. Apparently, per the USA Today article, the age of the crater was dated at about 13,000 years old, 
<laughs> but not so fast. As of recently, scientists have done more analysis and found that the age isn't 13,000 years old, but 58 million years old. <laughs> because of course it is. Back to my opening spiel, that makes science a mere 446,153.8% wrong. But don't worry, they're absolutely correct now. How can we be sure? Well, they tested sand gas, that's how. Okay, not just sand gas, let's not be flippant here. Rock gas also. So I promise I'm not going to go super deep in this, but indulge me for a few minutes as I give a 10,000 foot or, or a 75 bazillion foot, depending on what gas I've got, overview, as you need to at least have a very basic idea of what they're doing. They used two techniques to measure the age of the sand grains and the rocks, more accurately, crushed rock grains. They used argon-argon dating and uranium-lead dating. In both cases, they rely on the quantity of specific elements in relation to others. I'm not going too deep into this. I'm going to link some articles in the notes if you're curious. Both articles that believe that the dating methods are accurate, and some Answers in Genesis articles that talk about the problems with these various dating methods. Specific elements, in either case, decay or break down over time, which results in other elements forming. By measuring the amount of these elements resulting from the decay as compared to the parent elements, they can determine how old the sample is. This is dependent on the decay rate of the parent element, potassium for the argon dating, and two different forms of uranium for the uranium-lead method. In both cases, the decay rate is spoken of in terms of half-life, which is how long the parent element takes to decay half of what it started with to the decayed element. Hopefully you're still with me. We're coming to the payoff here. The half-lives of these and many others are considered to be known quantities, known numbers. Potassium has a half-life, allegedly, of 1.248 billion years. Uranium-238 has a half-life of 4.47 billion years. And Uranium-235 has a half-life of 710 million years. And how do we know these alleged known values? Well, we have very sensitive, high-precision equipment that can measure decay over time. Now, here's my logical question. Uranium-lead dating has been around since about 1907, so 115 years. Potassium-argon dating, which is what argon-argon is based off of, has been around since the 1950s, so about 70 years. Regardless of your view of 6,000-year-ago creation or 13.8-billion-year-ago Big Bang, the reality is that we have no more information than the 115 years and the 70 years, respectively, that we could actually observe the elemental decay rate to determine the actual half-life. To give you some perspective, let's say you're driving from New York City to Los Angeles, California. Per Google Maps, that's a distance of 2,789 miles. Oh, and there will be tolls, and Los Angeles will be in a different time zone. <laughs> Thank you, Google. When you look at how long we've observed the decay rate versus how long they say the half-life is, that's like driving 10 inches for argon, or 28.6 inches for uranium-235, 
or 4.5 inches for uranium-238, and then saying that based on those inches that we just drove, we now know exactly what the road conditions will be, the traffic will be, the elevation change will be, and every other aspect of our trip from NYC to LA. Now, if that sounds ridiculous, congratulations, you're thinking. What, quote, science is doing is what they must do with evolutionary science, unless it doesn't work for their theory, in which case they don't do it, as in the case of the Big Bang, where they throw out all the known rules of every form of science in order to make that dog's breakfast work. What they're doing is using a theory of steady state, or uniformitarianism, saying everything always has and always will work the exact same way that we observe it working today. This is a very arrogant assumption, as we have no idea how this planet or universe works. Not really. It's very possible that potassium, for instance, decays very slowly at first and then increases to an unbelievable rate. Maybe not. But the thing is, we don't know. They also make the assumption that we know the starting point. All potassium, no argon for instance. I've heard it described as this, walking into a room with a candle burning and being asked how long the candle has been burning. Well, we can do a lot of real observable measurements, but we have no idea how tall the candle was originally. And we have no idea of the shape of the part of the candle that's melted away, which would have determined the rate at which it would have melted. We have to make a lot of assumptions, which is what evolutionary science must do. And you know what happens when you assume? I'm not going to say it, but it's not flattering to you or me. Let's just say that. Let's continue in this short article. One other thing I want to point out. Just a short time ago, they were positive that a meteor hit the Earth and caused the crater 13,000 years ago. Now they're positive that a meteor hit the Earth and caused the crater 58 million years ago. Now that they have a new timeline, they can absolutely say that at this time, Greenland was covered by a rainforest, not ice and snow. This isn't because they've observed it, it's because that's what their theory tells them. What you'll find is that evolutionary science can never be pinned down. It's constantly changing, but not in the way actual science should. Real science tests a theory, and then when the theory is proven to be faulty, they develop a new theory. Evolutionary science says that they know it happened. Now, how do we fit the alleged evidence into the theory? That's not how it's supposed to work. Last thing, this article says that the meteor that hit had the force of one million atomic bombs. The original atomic bombs released about 0.15 megatons of energy. One million of those would be, doing the math, 150,000 megatons of energy. A few years ago, the asteroid Apophis, or Apophis was all the rage. You may remember it as being about as wide as the Eiffel Tower is tall. And the fear is that this asteroid is relatively close to Earth and maybe it'll hit. Who knows? The impact force was calculated for this asteroid based on what they knew about it and they estimated it as being about 880 megatons. The crater size was then calculated, and it was estimated that it would leave a crater about 1.25 miles across. The Hiawatha crater is 19 miles across, so about 15 times the diameter. But they say that it had 
150,000 megatons of energy, which is 170 times that of Apophis. Logically, does this make sense? Or does it seem like they're trying to make this impact something larger than it appears to be for some reason? I'm not digging into this, but it's just kind of curious. Here's the deal. Science, and specifically the religion of evolutionary science, will never be able to accurately determine anything about the origins of this planet or universe because they are literally worshipping at the altar of science without even considering that maybe God actually created everything 6,000 years ago. When you discount an entire hypothesis without actually disproving it, just not wanting it to be true, you've stopped doing science. You are literally into a faith-based religion. So let me present an alternative. They were likely closer with the 13,000-year guess. The Bible tells us when the dates and ages are added up that God created everything about 6,000 years ago. Many questions are out there, though, about how did everything age so fast if he created it new? How was light from stars much farther away than 6,000 light years already here for us to see? How could rocks already show radioactive decay of elements that we allegedly know would have taken millions or billions of years? Well, first, if you believe in creation by God, you believe that God created Adam and Eve in a mature state, not as babies. And this included all the knowledge to walk, talk, think, reason at a mature level. He also created the plants, trees, and other vegetation, not from seeds, but fully mature. And the same with animals. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? According to the Bible, the chicken, riddle solved. Furthermore, according to the Bible, God lit up this planet, and then four days later, he created the sun, the moon, and the stars, which are just other very, very far away suns. And apparently we, or more accurately, Adam and Eve, could see the sun, moon, and stars immediately. So why would we think that an all-powerful God that did all this creation couldn't make a mature creation? We also can easily assume that the original creation was a mostly temperate climate. So if Greenland was part of the original exposed landmass in creation, it could be assumed that it may have been a rainforest type of environment. Lastly, we have impact craters all over this earth. There is no reason to believe that we haven't been hit by many meteors over the years. It's possible that this impact was at the time of the global flood, or at any time before recorded history of that region. There's no need to believe that it happened millions of years ago, just that it happened before a point in time where humans recorded it. Look, I don't have all the answers, but the Bible tells us in Romans 1.20 that his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. I can't tell you definitively how everything came into being, but I can tell you that we can easily see the fingerprints of an all-powerful creator all over this creation. As I said, as long as science discounts a very plausible theory in its entirety as to the origins of the universe, the laws that govern the universe, and the history of this planet, science as a whole will be nothing but a religion. Although a belief in Christianity isn't necessary to create machines, develop medicines, produce and harness energy, etc., 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 we already know that science takes ideas from creation to create machines that mimic the elegance of creation, because creation was made uniquely, logically, and beautifully. 
and man will never surpass his creator. If science continues to ignore even the possibility of the very being that placed the universal laws in place so that scientific analysis can be done, science will never discover anything more than surface-level dreck, relatively speaking. It's not my intent to do many of these types of reviews, straying away from my stated goal of reviewing news articles, but I also had a goal of being around 30-ish minutes an episode, so I guess we can see where this is going. Okay, quick rabbit trail. Let me give you a little insight into me. I'm a terrible estimator. I'm a guy that does some building, some fixing, things like that, and I can generally give you a time that it'll take. Then you can multiply that by about three or ten or a thousand, and you'll likely be closer to what the actual non-optimistic real-world time may be to accomplish that thing. Therefore, here we are. So there are people out there both on YouTube or in podcast format that take a greater amount of time and do a much more thorough and more deeply theological job of reviewing sermons. My goal with this sermon review is to be a bit more surface level in a much shorter format to basically wet your whistle, or if you can't whistle, wet your awkward and probably slightly comedic squished lip wind blowing and cause you to want to build up your discernment skills so that you're able to spot apparent unbiblical or extra-biblical content that doesn't seem to jive with the scriptures. And let me be clear, every pastor, no matter how seasoned, how well-read, how thoroughly studied, will misspeak or flat-out make a mistake from time to time. They are not who I'm talking about. In fact, a pastor who is truly striving to follow the command in 2 Timothy 2.15 will gladly answer questions, accept constructive, loving criticism or correction, and continue striving to communicate the truths of the Bible better with each message. I'm talking about the pastors that have an agenda, that have a goal other than discipling those that are saved and evangelizing the lost. Pastors who measure success using dollar signs, butts in seats, or baptisms on Sunday. Many so-called pastors are easy to spot, and I'm sorry if I step on any toes here. If you take umbrage, which I thought was a brownish color, so I'm not sure why you'd take that. I don't really make the rules. Uh, You can comment or email me, and I will attempt to defend my position. Pastors like Benny Hinn or Todd White or Bill Johnson are just charlatans. Yeah, they have a ton of followers each, but one can easily point out their errors, or more accurately, their manipulations. Then you get into probably the largest section of so-called pastors that are They're usually very popular, very popular, but when you break down what they're saying, it's pretty easy to see, you know, exactly what they're doing or or not doing. This would be people like Stephen Furtick or T.D. Jakes, Perry Noble, Joyce Meyer, who, per the Bible, is not a pastor, or Real Talk Kim, again, not a pastor, and, and that ilk. And then you get into the really dangerous ones, the guys that are harder to figure out, but if your discernment ears are turned on and turned up, You may not know what exactly, but you know something isn't quite right. This would be people like Rick Warren, Craig Groeschel, Robert Morris, and enter the subject for today, Andy Stanley. In brief, Andy Stanley is the 63-year-old pastor of North Point Ministries, a multi-campus church throughout greater Atlanta, where he's been the lead pastor of the church he founded, North Point Community Church, since 1995. He's the son of the very well-known pastor Charles Stanley, who's now 89 years old. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you absolutely know Charles Stanley. 
his down-home, plain-talking, almost what you think of as a country-style preacher type of delivering messages has endeared him to multiple generations. And although I don't agree with everything he preaches, I personally would be shocked to find out he wasn't saved. I believe that he and I will both be glorifying God for all of eternity. Andy, however, Andy is a different case. I think I'd be a bit more shocked to find out that he actually is saved rather than the other way around. He professes a belief in Jesus, and honestly, only Jesus, as he's been very clear that believing Jesus exists is more important than the Bible itself, and that sets up a theological paradox that leads you down the path to not believing in the Jesus of the Bible, only believing in the Jesus of your desires and dreams, which is to say not believing in Jesus at all. The sermon I want to touch on, point out some curiosities, is one that he preached very recently, March 6th. I I believe it was March 6th. It was posted on March 7th. It was entitled, Investigating Jesus, Part 1. Somebody had to tell it. The link is in the notes. I will not be playing sound bites, as I believe Andy is one of the famous pastors that gets his knickers in a twist when he's critiqued, and apparently has trolls out there trying to find anyone that dares play his audio or video without permission, especially if done in a critical light. But I'll give you the timestamps, and you can investigate with me or on your own, whatever you'd like. As a background, Andy, and I'll use his first name so as not to cause confusion with you know, dear old dad, Andy has been on a mission for a number of years now. He has a few key components to his mission. Eliminate the Bible as being inspired, inerrant, infallible, and necessary. He wants to do away with the Old Testament particularly, thus doing away with the perception of an angry God and all of those strict laws. He wants to reduce or eliminate faith as a necessary component of salvation and the Christian life, especially anywhere that faith without sight is promoted, although eliminating faith without sight is literally eliminating faith. He wants to promote the love of Jesus only, which it is a facet of Jesus, but that in itself is not the complete Jesus or the complete God the Father. And he's got a push for social justice, a a woke kind of Christianity. He's affirmed on more than one occasion an unrepentant homosexual to be saved. He elevated George Floyd as, quote, this generation's Samson. And he excoriated pastors for staying open during the COVID debacle, stating, quote, the Lord does not require us to meet. So I've got a link to a discernment website archive of some Andy stories. Now let me caution you to even discern the discernment sites. I've not always agreed with every stance taken by this particular site, but I've used them as a good springboard to move into my own further research. Andy has also criticized his critics, saying that they falsely pull sound bites or quotes from him without citing the context and without ever listening to his entire sermon or sermon series, or complete body of work, in order to understand what he's saying. And he keeps broadening the requirement, you know, to fully understand him. And if we don't meet that requirement, then we're taking him out of turn, which begs the question, if you can't let a sermon stand on its own, what are first-time visitors exactly hearing? Hmm? 
And he starts this sermon with one of his favorite premises or premisi. If we're trying to figure out this God thing, does it really come down to, quote, the Bible tells us so? He jumps straight into the fact that we're modern and rational people, and this is why he's a firm believer that science has proven evolution to be true, which in my opinion is reason enough to leave his church <laughs> quickly. And then he asks the opening set of questions, quote, are we really expected to believe what we believe or believe anything based on a collection of ancient manuscripts written by potentially dozens of men only who didn't even know each other over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years in a world without science in the way that we think of modern science and in a world where everybody believed in the gods or some kind of god? I mean, let's just be honest, all right? Weren't they just making stuff up? I mean, Weren't they just guessing? Weren't they just looking at the weather patterns and trying to make sense of something that just didn't make any sense in that time? <laughs> okay. Oh my goodness. Did you catch all of that? I'm one minute and 17 seconds into his 34 and a half minute video. In one minute, he's eliminated the Holy Spirit and the fact that the scriptures are God-breathed. He's promoted modern day science over biblical accuracy. He's relegated the writers to nothing but glorified cavemen that were terrified when the sky gods were angry and stomping around in the heavens. He's turned the Bible into nothing more but fairy tales. And did you catch the woke? It was written by men only. How could these men possibly get their perspective right without having an equal percentage of women doing the writing? Oh, oh, the theological glass ceiling. Now, a lot of pastors will start with an anecdote or will dive right into reading the base scripture for the day. And if any pastor were to start with these questions, you'd expect him to stop, look at you expectantly and shout, no! Eh. And he jumps in by destroying the basis for the Christian faith as we know it today, the Bible, God's holy and protected, Holy Spirit-inspired word. This is how Andy must start his sermons, or else he can't build the case that follows. He then spends a good amount of time about how modern-day people are losing faith, and it's because we're pushing the Bible thing, claiming it to be true. He does answer the question at 2 minutes 47 seconds as he's talking about quote, faith, when he states that Christians are not, in fact, expected to believe. And then he repeats a summary of all his deep, thoughtful, and heretical questions, states that the foundation of our faith, and by faith he really means religion, doesn't rise and fall on the accuracy and inerrancy of 66 documents we call the Bible, but rather it rises and falls on one man, Jesus. Remember, this is one of his favorite things to do. Discount everything focus solely on Jesus and only on the loving, accepting, non-judgmental side of Jesus. He then, at 5 minutes and 10 seconds, says that if you're struggling with your faith, the correct and only question you need to ask is, quote, is Matthew, Mark, Luke, or, not and, or John a reliable account of actual events? Again, Tearing down the inerrancy and trustworthiness of the Bible as a whole and dismissing faith unless it's faith by sight, regardless of the fact that Jesus said in John 20, 29, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Then he lays out his logic at 607. If any one of these is accurate, then what they say about Jesus is accurate. And if what they say about Jesus is accurate, then, quote, game on faith on. 
Then apparently because of Game on Faith on, you could, quote, press on and, quote, lean in. Are, are, are you leaning yet? At about seven minutes, he shows some timeline that shows the story of Christian faith, with which it, it starts at the resurrection, but once again, it, it's only being used to show that the Bible is really just a storybook compiled by people and not to be taken completely seriously. At 9.53, he reveals that over the next number of Sundays, his plan is to, quote, explore the Gospel of Luke, to examine it for accuracy of its claims, with the idea that if we can be sure that Luke is correct in his claims, then we can be sure of the claims of Jesus. Now, why Luke? Well, I have some theories on that. I'll get to that in a few minutes. At this point, I'm not going to go through his well-rehearsed schlock, but at about 11.15, he starts to do what a lot of these false teachers do. He starts by slicing and dicing the scripture into a single word or a phrase. Now, to his credit, after he analyzes the first word of some of the translations of Luke 1, the word many, for nearly 30 seconds, he does read the verse and following verses in their entirety, but as he does this, he has very specific words highlighted, as that's what he wants you to think about. He has certain key phrases that he pulls out. So after another nearly three and a half minutes of making a point of still that word many, he then focuses on the phrase among us. Why? Because it's very important for Andy to have physical proof. His faith is by sight, not by his personal sight, but he wants someone to give him as much physical proof as possible so he can believe. What he misses is the key phrase in the first verse, which states, quote, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Okay, what was fulfilled? The fulfillment was that of the many, many Old Testament prophecies. Luke wrote this book 20 to 30 years after the ascension of Jesus. You got to imagine that the followers of the way, led by the apostles and the central church in Jerusalem, had had to have been scouring whatever scrolls they had of what we know of today as the Old Testament to read it as if it all now pointed to Jesus to discover if Jesus did in fact fit the prophesied Messiah. Luke was definitive in his statement that they had been fulfilled, not might, not we hope, had been. Andy doesn't even touch this. As remember, he wants to eliminate the Old Testament from his version of Christianity. It's too preachy and judgy, and it's got too many rules and consequences. No, the only way he actually addresses fulfilled is that he changes the meaning. He changes the context. And he very quickly says, quote, Many people have endeavored to draw up an account of the things that have literally happened or been fulfilled right here among us. See what he did? Fulfilled for all of those listening and watching now has a present tense meaning. It's just about what's happened during the days of Jesus, not a pointing back to the prophecies that were literally fulfilled. Now, he goes on to stress that Luke's writings were based on eyewitness accounts and careful investigation. This is important because remember, Faith is by sight for Andy. He then quickly moves through verse 2 and into verse 3, where he draws his, quote, point for the day from the last half sentence. Quote, I too decided to write an orderly account for you. His point at 18 minutes, 13 seconds, Luke is not writing the Bible. And this is because Luke didn't know that there would be a the Bible. He then does one of his favorite tricks, the shocking statement, quote, the Gospel of Luke isn't part of the Bible. <gasps> How could he say that? 
Well, it's all semantics. It was only included in the Bible eventually, quote, because of what this story contained when it was written, who wrote it, and what it said about Jesus. So, it's not the Bible, it's only in the Bible. And he goes on to say we shouldn't take Luke seriously because it's in the Bible, but rather because it was considered reliable when it was written. Then he gives a simple-minded illustration for the mouth-breathing congregation staring at him doe-eyed, enamored at his theological prowess. As I said before, Andy Stanley cannot have the Bible stand as an authoritative, reliable, trustworthy, inspired word of God. Not for him to accomplish his goals, he can't. Then, as he's coming to the big payoff, the forehead slapping, mind-blowing, hopefully not at the same time, or you might lose your hand as well, payoff. He goes through his diatribe of covering every possible position of faith that anyone might have, and they all need to ask the question, quote, is Luke lying? He said that Luke couldn't have been mistaken, but that he either carefully investigated everything or he didn't. Remember, this is purely evidence-based faith for Andy. That's what he's promoting. Now, he believes that by the writings of Luke, Luke has affirmed that he wasn't lying. But to that, I'd have to say, how do you know? He said that Luke absolutely believed what he wrote. <laughs> okay, maybe so. Lots of people have believed or affirmed belief in false testimony, untrue accounts of their life. Andy's premise is flawed to the very core because he's placing his faith in a person, the person of Luke, not Jesus, Luke. At this point, after Andy has thoroughly torched the Bible, it's now time to take direct aim at faith. He said at 2347 that Luke did this work, this research, this documentation of the events, quote, so that we wouldn't be left with the impression that Christianity is all about faith in faith. We just gotta have faith, said not Jesus, okay? We just gotta believe stuff, said nobody who followed Jesus after the resurrection. That Christianity isn't faith in faith, but that our faith, quote, would be anchored to an event and ultimately to a person. And the event in question was the resurrection of Jesus. Then he goes into a convoluted history, uh, again, of the assembly of the Bible and the start of Christianity. And then at 2930, he says, quote, You see, the stories in the Bible about Jesus, they're not Bible stories. The story of Jesus is the story. It's the whole thing. If any one of the Gospels reflects the reality of Jesus' life and Jesus' teaching, that's enough for us to sit up straight and pay attention. Because at the end of all four Gospels, Jesus is crucified by Rome and buried and seen and rises from the dead. Okay, let's stop here for just a moment. Although Roman soldiers did the physical act of crucifixion, Jesus submitted himself and God the Father crucified his son. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And then it goes on to say, Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. Now, Andy can't say that it was God's will to crush his son for the salvation of many. In fact, Andy doesn't talk about salvation at all. No repentance, no belief, no redemption, no grace, no real faith, no heaven, no hell. No, Andy sums up this, this absolute abortion of a sermon, this, this heresy, 
with first stating at 30 minutes 55 seconds that if you choose not to follow Jesus because it's inconvenient, yeah, he gets that, he understands. Now, why would it be inconvenient? Well, don't worry, Andy gives us the excuses we can use. Quote, following Jesus will require something of you, and following Jesus will require something from you. Which, I'm pretty sure, really the same thing. But he goes on, quote, It's going to require you to forgive people who don't deserve to be forgiven. Following Jesus is going to require you to be less selfish, less full of yourself. You'll find that as these wolves get ramped up, they state the same thing multiple ways to sound as if they're making a bunch of points. He continues, quote, It's going to cost you some money. <laughs> this is because Jesus knew that where your treasure is, your heart is also, so it's going to cost you. Quote, and if you finally decide to follow Jesus, it's going to cost you some time. Okay, so if you choose to not follow Jesus because it's too costly or inconvenient, yeah, Andy accepts that. Quote, however, if you choose to follow Jesus, it will eventually make your life better, and it will make you better at life. That's a guarantee. Then he states that the, quote, only good reason really not to follow Jesus isn't that the Bible isn't true. It's that you decide that Luke isn't trustworthy. Okay, so as for his guarantee, I guess we have to ignore that Jesus said in John 16.33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I guess we have to ignore where Jesus said in John 15.18, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. But these aren't in Luke, so this might just all be lies. I don't know. Who knows? But I guess we don't want to ask any of the apostles either, all but one of which was martyred. I guess we don't want to ask those found in Fox's Book of Martyrs about how much better their life was. I guess we don't want to go over to the Middle East where Christians are being slaughtered, tortured, mutilated, kidnapped, raped, all because they're followers of Jesus. Regarding this bastardized version of faith that Andy has, we definitely don't want to step into the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, you know, where it says things like, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Uh-oh. By faith, we understand the universe was created by the Word of God. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. By faith, Noah constructed an ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Sarah conceived. By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. And on and on and on. Not by sight, not by proof, although many ask for signs. And we know that Jesus did miracles on the earth to prove he was God, and the apostles were granted the ability to perform miracles to prove that they were sent, but that was for a very short part of history. Paul stated in 1 Corinthians 1, Or since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Finally, why Luke? Why did Andy settle on Luke? Now first, keep in mind that each of the four Gospels was written for a purpose. Taken together, they give us a very good, comprehensive, complete view of the life of Jesus. Taken separately, we still get the core of the Gospel, but we lose some of the depth because we're reading from a single perspective. Now, I found a number of Gospel comparison charts. I've put the links in the notes. You can check them out. 
but a few things kind of stuck out to me. Now, I'll let you investigate deeper for yourself. But a couple of the basic ideas that jumped out at me were that Luke focuses more on Jesus, the God-man. Luke, in this same regard, traces the genealogy back to Adam. The book of Luke has kind of a basic premise to, to do what Jesus commands us. A lot of what should we do as Christ followers, you know, things like helping the poor, forgiving people, using your wealth, things like that. And then there was a greater focus on women in Luke maybe than other Gospels. And remember, Andy has a woke angle to his theology. From these comparison charts, there is much less of a focus on the salvation aspects, which suits Andy just fine, because he's not really interested in that part. Not really. He's interested in faith by sight, rule-based, works-based, non-judgmental Christianity. You know, it's going to cost you. To wrap this up, let me encourage you to find a solid gospel preaching pastor, not a heretical wolf in sheep's clothing like Andy Stanley. The Bible tells us that if we love God, we'll love his word, we'll love his commandments. Andy doesn't display love for God at all. He displays contempt, flippancy. Andy needs our prayers. He doesn't need our attention or our money. He needs our prayers. I don't know who Andy believes in, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. If you're listening to him or anyone like him, get away. Dump these guys. They're only hurting you. Nothing they say will help you in your sanctification. And with anyone, me included, always open your Bible and verify that what you're being told is biblical. Ultimately, you are accountable for what you believe. It's up to you to ensure that the shepherd you're under is in fact there to help you and not devour you. You've probably heard the term subliminal advertising. This is a technique of sneaking in phrases, pictures, words, or sounds that are below the threshold of conscious human perception, but that the subconscious can pick up, which then allegedly manipulates your thought process to make you want to do or buy the things that's being advertised. You can look up various stories about this if you so choose. They're out there everywhere. In many countries, this practice has been deemed illegal. In the United States, it's not exactly illegal, but it's basically illegal. Now, I've thought about inserting in my podcast a low-level soundbite of me saying, buy my book, but I don't have a book, and I'd probably forget that I did that, and then I'd get really frustrated with people constantly asking to buy my book that I, that I don't have, but I digress. One place that is apparently not above subliminal messaging, at least conceptually, is the news. Now, as far as I know, they aren't doing anything in the subconscious realm, although <laughs> would we be shocked if it was revealed today that they all were left and right? They're not doing this that we know of, but their messaging is more of the manipulation of emotions, the phrasing and words they use to invoke an emotion to persuade and to sway public opinion. As kind of a follow-up to a story you can find in episode 12 of this podcast entitled Everything is Backwards, listen to my podcast, headline from the ever-reliable, perfectly neutral AP News, Texas Clinic's lawsuit over abortion ban, quote, effectively over. Now, the gist of the article for anyone out there that's not a baby murdering monster is actually very positive. If you're the baby murder type person, this story won't make you happy. 
bottom line, the Texas Supreme Court on March 11th shut down the last gasp effort of the bloodthirsty left to try to continue to murder babies after six weeks of pregnancy. In December, the Supreme Court of the United States kicked it back to Texas with only one small detail to rule on, which they did, and they knocked it down. What this means is that the Texas abortion law will stand for the foreseeable future, to which I say, suck on that, baby murderers. <clears throat> now, it goes through all the data for baby murder, etc., etc., but I don't want to focus on that. The article is linked if you want to read it. Now, what I want to focus on is the messaging. If I go to Fox News or OAN or Newsmax, I expect to hear right-wingery, probably something about God and Bibles and guns. Am I right? If I go just about anywhere else, <laughs> who knows what I'll hear, but it'll most definitely involve screaming, foaming at the mouth, and I might be touched inappropriately. I don't know if I could legitimately say that any of the news networks are truly neutral anymore, if they ever were. When it comes to the internet, you have much of the same, right and left, and you get into conspiracy and extremism. You have about anything you want out there, but general news sources like the AP, I thought, were supposed to be generally neutral. As Dragnet's Sergeant Joe Friday said, just the facts, ma'am. Turns out, nope, not neutral. So in this review, I want to point out the semi-subliminal manipulation that even the AP is doing. Starting with the headline, they call it an abortion ban. <laughs> I wish, but, but it's not. And couldn't they have just used the name of the bill, the Texas Heartbeat Act? That would have made the title of the article, Texas Clinic's Lawsuit Over the Texas Heartbeat Act, quote, effectively over. Would that be so bad? Well, yeah, it is bad. It's bad for their agenda. However, it would be more accurate. In fact, the current title using the phrase abortion ban is completely disingenuous, you know, like a lie. They could have even said partial ban or something like that, and it wouldn't have been a twisting of the truth like they've done here. But remember, agenda. Now, after the title, you have to go all the way to the first sentence to find the next piece of manipulation. Quote, the Texas Supreme Court on Friday dealt essentially a final blow to abortion clinics' best hopes of stopping a restrictive law that has sharply curtailed the number of abortions, yada, yada, yada. Look at the language. Delta blow. Restrictive law. Sharply curtailed. That's how the pro-life side is represented, as the antagonist. Clinics' best hopes. That's how the pro-aborts are portrayed, as the victim. Moving into paragraph two, quote, the ruling by the all Republican court was not unexpected. It slammed the door after the U.S. Supreme Court twice declined to stop a ban on abortions after roughly six weeks. Now, you can read the article. I kind of put those pieces together, cut out the drivel in the middle, but that's what they said. So is the court all Republican? Yeah, sure. Was the expectation that generally conservative thinkers would rule against abortion? Probably, although judges should actually rule on the Constitution and the law, not on political leanings or worldview. Did the AP mean this as a statement of fact? No. They clearly were pointing out that it's the hateful right that doesn't care about the law, they just hate women. And this becomes more clear as you go through the article. As for the U.S. Supreme Court, 
Did they decline to stop the ban? Yeah, but is that really what they did? No, they viewed this as a state's right thing, and they gave it back to the state, like they're supposed to do. The states actually have autonomy. Roe versus Wade is not a law, it was a ruling. The states have rights to enact laws within their jurisdiction. But the AP wanted to ensure we knew that the SCOTUS is against women as well. Next, quote, it spells the coming end to a federal lawsuit that was rejected at nearly every turn and in every court for six months. Now, the AP would have you believe that all the courts are against women. But shouldn't it say something if this lawsuit was rejected everywhere? Is it more logical to imply that all the courts are against you or that you're alleging something wrong? Next, quote, it is likely to embolden other Republican-controlled states. Okay, and? I mean, isn't that what elections are for? If the majority of the state doesn't align with your beliefs, move! It's not the rest of the state's job to kowtow to your wishes. Specifically, if you must have the ability to get pregnant and kill the child over and over and over, I'd suggest that, well, you're mentally unstable and probably to the point you shouldn't be in free society, but at the very least, get out of a red state. There are plenty of states that would gladly welcome you, especially if you contribute anything to the tax base, as most of the states you'll find accepting of your breeding practices are hemorrhaging citizens and cash. Next, quote, Texas's law leaves enforcement up to private citizens who are entitled to collect what critics call a bounty of $10,000 if they bring a successful lawsuit against a provider or anyone who helps a patient obtain an abortion. Okay, what critics call a bounty. So the bill, which is admittedly clever, doesn't put the enforcement on the state, but on the citizenry. I, I kind of like that. This means that a private citizen must spend their time and their money to pursue a lawsuit against an abortion provider and prove that the provider willingly violated the law. So the bill says that the plaintiff is entitled to statutory damages of $10,000 or more for each abortion provided by the defendant. And what's wrong with this? The, the critics can call it what they want, but couldn't the AP just take a few extra lines of text and explain the context of the bill? Or, or do they have to pay by the letter on this internet thing? Maybe they've got some really horrible antiquated AOL deal, you know, that they're still working through or something. Next, quote, anti-abortion groups who pushed GOP lawmakers to approve the law also called it a significant victory. Okay, first, <laughs> anti-abortion not pro-life. The negative connotation is used to further invoke negative emotions from the reader. And they pushed GOP lawmakers. I mean, not even the GOP lawmakers really wanted to do this. They were basically held hostage until they... Yeah, no, no, they weren't, right? Is it any surprise that pro-life groups would lobby politicians, lawmakers, who historically share their worldview to make laws favorable to their worldview? Isn't that what the left does? Only they do it much, much better, as most of them are likely more susceptible to blackmail from their criminal past. <laughs> oh, wait, wait a minute. Did I say that out loud? Uh, well, there's no way to edit that out now. Okay, the implication being made is that not only are the GOP lawmakers evil, but the anti-abortion lobby is evil. In fact, they're eviler. 
And the judges, oh man, the judges, they are the evilest of all. It's just evil all the way down or, or up or whatever way you go. Each entity is more evil than the last. That's what I'm trying to say. Although I could do much, much more of this as I'm only about halfway through the article, I think you kind of get the point, right? But just one more quote. Just indulge me here. From Alexis McGill Johnson, the president and CEO of Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Quote, because of the U.S. Supreme Court's repeated refusal to intervene for more than a half a year, Texans are living in a state of sustained chaos, crisis, and confusion, and there is no end in sight. Tragically, this attack on reproductive freedom now continues uninterrupted in Texas and across the country. Okay, so I looked her up. She doesn't look like a psychotic drama queen, but, uh, but here we are. So are Texans really living in a state of sustained chaos, crisis, and confusion? Nice alliteration, by the way. I would have to say that only the bloodthirsty, baby-murder-insatiable leftist horde is probably in chaos, crisis, and confusion. Seeing as though Texas is a red state with respect to voting and a plurality of right-wing voters based on general polling, I'd say that Texans are more fine with this bill than they are confused. But sadly, as Crazy Alexis says, there's no end in sight. Well, no, the, the end is that Texas made a law, and the law was crafted very well, and it withstood every legal challenge brought against it. It seems like that would be the end. Now you're living in a new reality. If your mongrel horde of homicidal maniacs in Texas don't like it, Maybe Planned Parenthood could stop paying her her $337,000 annual salary. Or Leanna Wynn, the president of Planned Parenthood, her $1.3 million salary. Or or even Dawn Legoons, the senior advisor, you know, because she makes $1.15 million per year. Maybe they could use some of that money to move these poor, confused, crisis-laden wretches to more friendly states. In fact, Planned Parenthood has taken in $31 billion over the last 25 years, a good chunk of that being our tax dollars. It seems like they should have a little bit of money there to help gather their chicks under their wings, right? And finally, with her quote, tragically, this attack on reproductive freedom. Um, tragic for whom? Not for the babies, that's for sure. In fact, if I had to list tragedies in order of tragicness, a woman giving birth or a human ripped into pieces, I'd almost have to give the most tragic award to the human that's destroyed while still alive. As for reproductive freedom, nobody is banning reproductive freedom. If you want to have sex, that's up to you. If you want to do it unprotected, again, up to you. If you want to prevent pregnancy or you want to have as many kids as your stretched, converted limo van will hold, again, up to you. The argument really has nothing to do with reproduction. It has to do with murder. The attack on murdering another human being now continues uninterrupted in Texas, Ms. McGill-Johnson. I know I generally bring this back to a Christian theme. Okay. Do we need to do this this time? Do we not know that there's a commandment not to murder? Do we not know by now that David talks about how we are intricately woven together by God in the womb? Do we not know that Jesus valued children highly? Do we not know that we are image bearers of God? And what about lying? We're not supposed to lie. It almost seems like there's another commandment about that somewhere. I, 
can't put my finger upon it. This is nothing but a manipulating form of lying. It's lying with a very specific purpose. The AP and pretty much every news source out there will call this reporting style a slant. It's not a slant. It's an agenda. They use language that if you're not thinking about, as your eyes gloss over the headline and casually scan the article, you won't generally pick up on most of it. And this is why it's so dangerous. This is why I'd lump this in with subliminal messaging because it's made to invoke emotion, manipulate thoughts, and drive you to a worldview that they decide. So to wrap this up, how do we counter this? Well, be careful little eyes what you see. Read the news. I think we should all know what's going on in the world, but read it as a Christian. Read it with your discernment turned way, way up. And read your Bible. You can't just expect to know the truth. You must submerge yourself in language of truth, writings of truth, so you can spot the lies, the spin, and the manipulation. And finally, pray. Pray for you. Pray for your family and friends. Pray for me that we would all be able to see the enemy clearly wherever he's trying to hide. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com or increasingly I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Thank you.